always a, always an incredible joy uh, to worship Lord with you in music, uh, and now to worship the Lord in uh, reading His Word and uh, seeking to apply it to our lives. So, if you have with you a Bible, if you want to turn with me to John chapter one, uh, we're uh, working through uh, this book this year, and we're up to verse thirty-five. If you do not have one with you, um, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and if you don't have uh, one at home, uh, we would love for you to take that home with you as a gift. We think that it's important for all of us to have a Bible and to be reading the Bible. And so uh, we, um, we always want to give uh, time to the scriptures when we gather, because more than anything, we need to hear what God would say to us. And so as you turn to John, uh, you may already be there, but if not, um, I want to give you just a little bit of time. I want to have just a few minutes of uh, family time. And so if you're a guest here at Providence, we welcome you to hear this, uh, but um, but for the next few minutes, I just want to talk to the family who call Providence their home. Um, uh, as you guys know, we're about halfway through, uh, in terms of timeline, uh, a two-year vision where we uh, are seeking to uh, make the most of, uh, of our time, uh, of our treasures, of our talents, our leaders, uh, to prepare us as a church family uh, for what the Lord would call us to do for the next 20 years. And I just want you to know that as a church family, you guys have been so incredibly generous, not just financially in your giving, but also in time and serving and going and praying. It's just a remarkable thing to watch. Uh, The third part of that vision was to improve and increase our uh, our, our, our buildings, uh, these, these things, which are, which are not the point, uh, but they're just resources to help us to do the point. The point, the purpose of why we even are a church family. God's word tells us. It's very, very clear. And we sum it up in a little sentence. It says that we exist to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ and then to grow them up to love and worship him. And that's what we want to spend all of our time doing. That's what we love to do, right? It's to help people to understand who Christ is and then help people to grow and then to worship together as a body because that's what we're going to do forever is, is, to, is, is to acknowledge him with our life. And so we want to give ourselves to this mission. And you need to know, even from my heart, the heart of the pastors and the elders, that the building is not the mission, right? This facility, it's literally, it's just brick, just like that chair. I look at this building and I look at that chair and I look at the same thing. It's just a resource. But as we've looked at uh, where we're at as a church family, and of course this is all past history for those of you who have been here for a year, is that we looked and we said, you know, we believe for a number of reasons that it's important for us to expand, in particular the room in which we will worship together, like this room right here, by either building or doing something else. Well, there's been a lot that's happened, but last fall, back in November, I went to uh, all of our pastors and all of the elders, and I just asked them. I said, you know, I believe that God wants us to know. He's promised in his word. If we lean not on our own understanding, it, he's going to direct our path. And we need to trust him that he wants us to know. Now, we've done this years past as well, but we intentionally, I asked them just to sacrifice and to give themselves for a season intentionally seeking the Lord's direction for how he would have us do that uh, as a church family. And we believe the Lord has given us direction that we're all excited about, I'm excited about. And that was drafted in a letter and it was sent out two weeks ago on a Monday. And if you did not get that, we want to ask you to stop by Next Steps. They're, um, they're, they're all back there. And to read through sort of what and how we believe the Lord uh, wants us to take our next step in terms of 
uh, in terms of this room, okay? Now, next Sunday night, we're going to gather here after baptism and after just a celebration time as a family with new members. And uh, we're going to gather and we're going to talk about this and even place it to the church family as a vote, the first step of it, okay? Which there is an artistic rendering. Let me just tell you, it's not going to look like that, okay? And so don't, don't, don't sear that into your attention or your, your brain because all that does is just an artistic um, picture that says we're going to move that wall out that way and we're going to move this wall out that way, okay? We don't know what it's going to look like yet. But what we do believe is that God wants us to do this for a, several reasons. One is stewardship. God put before us what I believe is five talents. And what I mean by that is if you read Matthew 28, he actually says that there was three stewards and he says to one he gave five and to one he gave two and to one he gave one. And the one with five talents went out and invested all five talents, made five more and brought it back to the Lord. And the one with two did the exact same thing. And what we want to do is, it doesn't matter how many talents God has given us, I believe it's five because it seems like God has been so incredibly generous to us, is that we want to be faithful with all five. Not four, not three, or not two. But I think the other reason of why it's so important is this. It's not because there's any hope in having a building or one that's bigger or smaller. Right? The hope is this, is that what we want to do is to meet a current need, but we also want to meet what we believe will be a future need as we're faithful. And if we're really being about what his mission, which is to see that his name is exalted among all nations, and we're out sharing the gospel with people and inviting them with us, is that we want to make sure that they have an opportunity to sit near you, or at least to sit in the same room with you. Okay, And so uh, we will do that uh, next, next uh, weekend. But this week, I would just simply ask you to be praying specifically for two things. Number one is God's direction. And number two is God's unity for us as a body, okay? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness. And as we come to you in your word here in John chapter one, we look to you. You're the author of truth and we need your help to understand this. So help us to believe it, understand it, apply it. And in particular, in this case, would you help us to be comforted by it because there's some incredibly comforting things that are here. We thank you for this treasure of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So years ago, the Frost family, uh, we went to the state fair uh, for the first time. Now, this was probably seven or eight years ago. So our boys that are now 13, 14, and 15, um, they, were, they were much younger, right? And so uh, everything was new. And if you've ever been to the fair, if you've ever been to the fair, the first time that you went to the fair, if you can remember back to those days where all the lights and all the smells and all the food and all the people and all the people asking you to come and do certain things and see certain things, it was riveting to you, and it definitely was to the boys. And I remember walking around the uh, state fairgrounds over here um, and watching my young sons and their faces light up with curiosity every time a vendor would come up and say, come and see this. Right? And it doesn't matter what it was, you know, whether it was a sword swallower or a fun house or a house of mirrors or the giant stuffed panda bear that they could win. Is every instruction was literally stapled to a promise for more joy. You come from where you're at and you come here and all of a sudden, if you see this, if you could see this, you are going to know a pleasure that you currently do not know. That's the promise of come and see. 
And so we're walking around, and uh, for the most part, for about the first hour, I was unscathed. And what that means is I kept the money in the pocket, and the boys were routinely disappointed. Dad, can't, no. Dad, no. Well, finally, their curiosity was piqued when the vendor came, and he says, come and see the world's smallest horse. Well, my boys, you know, they love the farm, and they love the animals, and so they're like, Dad, complete. And it was all of a sudden, it was on. I mean, literally, it was on. They looked up and they said, Dad, you said no to the bearded lady and you said no to the lizard man, but please let us see the world's smallest horse. And I, so I caved. I did. I, I said, okay, okay, one time, one time. Let's, let's see something. Uh, perhaps it'll be a lesson. That's what my wife's saying. She goes, just do it one time. It's just a few dollars and they're going to learn something from this. And I said, okay. So they did. They walk up the little ramp after paying. They look down into this little cage and they look back up, utterly devastated. And Josiah goes, that's it? <laughs> I said, that's it. Come on back down. Let's keep walking. Right? And the fact is, is every single one of us, in particular as adults, are familiar with those feelings, aren't we? We've been promised many, many times, come and see this. Whether it's a new phone or whether it's a new social app or whether it's a new, a new ball game or whether it's a new whatever it is, a new store. And it's left us wanting. And yet, isn't it interesting that the invitation to come and see still has such tremendous pull on our heart? And the reason is because every single one of us in this room want more. That's one thing we all have in common. No one stands up and says, please, nobody add any more happiness to my life. I can't take any more. It's perfect. There's all, there's this gnawing need in all of us for something more. And so the promise to come and see, it's incredibly compelling to us. Which is why I think it's so interesting and fascinating that when you read John chapter 1, we've not heard Jesus speak yet. We've gone through an entire month and Jesus hasn't said anything yet. Directly, meaning he's not been quoted yet until we get to this passage. And I think it's interesting that the very first words that Jesus, of Jesus that are recorded in the book of John prove that he knew that we have that longing, that we all want more. He's going to invite us to come and see. But unlike the world, Jesus knew where fullness could be found. So let's read it together. John 1, 35 to 42. He says, in the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he was walking by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That's four o'clock p.m. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So what I want to do in the few moments that we have here is to answer this question, and that is, why is coming to Jesus the source of your fullness? The first answer that this text gives us is because Jesus has the authority to remove sin. He has the authority to remove sin, something that's common to us all. Now, this has really been quite a three-day journey for John's 
uh, followers. Uh, We're aware that there were two of them, but there was probably more. Two of them, though, are recorded in this text. One of them is Andrew. and The other one we don't know. He's not listed. There's a lot of people who believe that the other one was the author, John. The reason is because he sure knew a whole lot about what was going on. And throughout the book, as a a first-hand eyewitness of these events, he never refers to himself by name. He sort of remains in the shadows, even though he's aware of every detail. So there's a possibility that John the author along with Andrew, were the two disciples that were following John the Baptist. We don't know that, so we'll just call them the two disciples. But two days before this, on the first of this three-day journey, it's sort of interesting, is these followers, these, these, these men following John the Baptist, this kind of religious man who's baptizing people out in the wilderness, he's uh, wearing, wearing uh, sort of a robe, and he's got a leather belt, and he's eating locust and honey, sort of an eccentric sort of a guy, and, and, uh, and they're following him because he's offering something. At least they certainly believe it, that there's some promise there. Maybe, maybe this is who we need to be investing our life in, this man. And, and all of a sudden, some Jewish leaders come out to John the Baptist, and they start questioning about his own identity. And these same disciples hear John the Baptist say these words, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. He says that in verse 20. In verse 22, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's coming. And then they also heard him say, and when he comes, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So these, these disciples who are hanging out with John, they literally are staking their life to this man. And this man says on this day, I'm not the man. I, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one to follow here. And when he comes, I'm so not the man, I can't even tie his shoes. So they go to bed on this. You, can't, you have to be thinking about the human element. You know, sitting on a pillow. Am I following the right guy here? Am I investing my life where I should be investing my life? Questions like you and I ask. So the second of these three days, these disciples are back with John the Baptist. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks by and John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away to the sin of the world. On that same day, he says, I want you to know that I've come out to the wilderness to baptize in order that this man might be revealed in Israel. And then in verse 34, he says, I want you to know something else. That man is the son of God. (laughs) The day ends and we're not told how they even respond. So now day two, imagine these two disciples, you're at home thinking, okay, I'm pretty sure we're not following the right guy here. And yet the very next day, day three, and that's our text this morning, who are they standing by? They're standing by John the Baptist again. Jesus walks by again, just like the day before. And this time, John the Baptist, maybe with a little bit more volume or a little bit more effort, he even cut some of the words off in order to go straight to the heart. Behold the lamb. There he is right there. In other words, why are you standing by me? He's right there. And we're told that these two disciples, they left John and they followed Jesus. 
And when we get to John chapter 3, we're going to find that John the Baptist was not discouraged at all. In fact, he was pleased and happy and rejoicing that these disciples, his disciples, left him in order to follow Jesus because that was his job description from God. He was fulfilling his plan when these people left. But you have to ask the question, why did they leave? And the reason I believe they left, there's a connection between verse 36 and 37. He says, behold the lamb. And he's already said, this is the one that can take away sin. And then they left. I think the reason they left John is because standing next to John, they still had a sin problem. They still had a guilt problem in their heart. You see, if you had a bucket and it's leaking water and you fill it with water, eventually what's going to happen is all the water flows out. And it's just like your heart and just like their heart. You see, sin literally cuts a channel through your heart draining all of the joy and all of the peace and all of the contentment and leaving behind only a residue of guilt and regret of what's been lost. And this is where they were. They're standing next to John, still feeling the separation between them and God because of their sin and the residue of guilt of feeling icky because of their sin, regretting what's been lost, the broken relationships, the lack of contentment. Just like you and me, they had that problem. You see, John was absolutely remarkable, but standing near him could not remove their sin and their guilt. Standing next to John with a heart that was riddled with sin would sort of be like standing next to a hospital road sign with a body that's riddled with broken bones, hoping that this road sign might be able to help. But the, hope, but the roadside can't help other than to point you to the one who can. And so John's saying, guys, you don't get it. I'm not the man. I'm not the Christ. I can't deal with your sin problem. But I know who can. And I'm going to point you there. So he says, behold the Lamb of God. He's right there. He's right there. You see, only he can remove guilt. Isn't it interesting, though, how many of us try to remove guilt in other ways? Isn't it remarkable how, even before we came to faith in Christ, how many different things we sought to pursue in order to deal with that gnawing guilt and regret and sin that was within our heart? I want to tell you a story about my son only because it shows you, hopefully, a good connector here. My son turns 13 tomorrow. His name is Seth. He's our third son. 13 years old. Now, 13 years ago, he was born, and he had a tumor on his spinal cord that, that, that was um, uh, on his back, and it actually reached in, went through the spinal cavity, and, and grew around his spinal cord so that it was tethered, so that as he was growing, what was happening is the spinal cord was stretching, and so he was losing nerve capacity, and so his life, walking, and everything else was threatened. And, and many of you prayed. And he's 13 years old today. He's walking, he's running, he plays on a basketball team. It's just, it's just a miracle. But what's awesome, um, not awesome, what's, 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 uh, what's tragic is what could have been. And I'm not just talking about his life. What could have been is that we could have dealt with that situation in ways that really didn't deal with the situation. And that's how most of us deal with guilt. We could have said, so you know what we need to do is let's just numb ourselves to the pain. I could have taken up the hobby of drinking. So you know what? Every time I start feeling those questions of God, why? And 
he's so young and it was like, wh- like, why in the world would you place this before us? I'll just start drinking and then eventually I'll numb myself to those realities and at least for a period of time, I won't have to think about it. That's an option. That's how a lot of people deal with their guilt. We could have said, you know, no, that's maybe too destructive. How about, how about we just seek to distract ourselves? Let's get all the Indiana Jones and Star Wars movies and just have movie marathons all day. And we'll just start it and, and just keep things in front of us. We'll just watch unending hours of football and sports. And we'll read unending novels. And, and just, we'll just give ourselves to distracting ourselves to the reality of what's before us. You see, the fact is you can do that. But in Seth's life, the only thing that could have helped him was surgery to remove the tumor from his body. And this is the reality of what's happening here. You see, the lamb in the Old Testament could not remove sin. It could only cover sin. It could only, that's what it did. It covered sin. But what John says of Jesus is he's the lamb of God. But unlike the lamb in the Old Testament that covered, he's the one who can take away sin. You see, friends, there's literally only one solution for sin problem that we have and for the guilt that remains and all that guilt threatens, and that's Jesus. And we can try to medicate it. We can try to numb. We can try to distract ourselves from all of our guilt, but I want you to know that only Jesus can remove that guilt. And so we as a church family, we commend you, look to Jesus Christ. You see, he came. He literally did come from heaven to earth, and he did live a righteous life that we did not. He died on a cross for my sin and yours. He was buried in a grave out of stone, stone that he created, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And for all who look to him, he says, I'll take away your sin. You trust in him. He says, I will take away your sin. And so I would just want to encourage us by way of application with this first point is let's run to Jesus and allow him to take away our sin. It may be that this is the first time you've ever looked to Jesus, that you don't have a right standing with the Lord. And so to look to him this time is to look to him for the very first time in your life. And what's going to happen is he's literally going to zero your account out. He's going to take away all of your sin and he will give you all of his righteousness. It's remarkable. But there's some of us in this room who, who have already trusted Christ and yet as we're walking through this life, isn't it interesting how we can find ourselves in certain patterns of sin? seem to be more acceptable. We're a little bit more hospitable to certain things at certain times. And so some of you may be at that place to where you know Christ and he's the savior of your life. And yet there's something in your life that you're allowing to stay, to have roots in your heart. It may be lust or it may be some form of pride or some form of greed or, or, or lying or, or I don't know what it is. All of us, we're all fallen. It's, we're all, it's common to all of us. But if we're not constantly repenting, what happens is those things take root. I believe he would say to us as believers, hey, look to Jesus today. Confess to him because not only can he take away that sin, but he'll also take away the guilt. This is what Psalm 32 verse 5 says. David says, I acknowledge my sin before you and you not only took away my sin, but the guilt of my sin. And this is what's available to us. This is why going and seeing Jesus literally does work, and it's because he's the source of fullness. The second reason, not only does he have the authority to to take away sin, but he has the authority to literally give spiritual sight 
so that we can see that he's great. Because otherwise, we can look at the most amazing things in the world and we don't even see them as there. So this is what happens, right? These two disciples, they leave John the Baptist and they're following Jesus. Jesus turns around and he sees them there. And he asks them a question. He says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now, this is really important. Okay, Let me just pause just for a second with our story. In the Gospel of John in particular, and in many of the Gospels, what we find is that Jesus frequently turns normal, everyday conversations into spiritual conversations, and he does it just really quick. So, for example, in John chapter 4, right, he's thirsty. There's a well. He says, I'm going to get some water. So he goes up there, and there's a woman up there. It's a Samaritan woman. And he says, would you give me a drink of water? And she says, wait a minute. How can you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? That'll make you unclean. And he says, just, he has the best comments in the world. He goes, he goes, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink of water. And she's still stumped. She's like, but you don't have a bucket. And it's, it's like really deep. Wow, how are you going to get the water out of there? So, so far, this is just a normal physical conversation about physical things. This is not a spiritual thing yet until Jesus does this. He says, look, everyone who drinks from this water, from this well, is going to be thirsty again. But the water that I can give to that person will become in that person a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. Wow. And this is what Jesus is doing with these two disciples. When he turns around and says, what are you seeking? He's not saying, what do you want? He's not saying, man, you're scaring me. How come you're following me? That's not what's happening here. He's addressing their heart, in particular, their treasure. He wants to know what you treasure before you follow him. How do I know this? Well, there's a few reasons. The first is we have a little hint in Matthew chapter 6. There he's talking about all kinds of things that people can seek with their life. And how these things make us nervous in life. They make us anxious. Enough so that we want to worry about them. So this is what he says there. He goes, look, do not worry. Saying, what are we going to eat? And what should we drink? And what should we wear? There's even a little verse in there that I didn't include on the screen that says this. Those who don't walk with God, they worry about these things. This is what they pursue. But God knows you need all these physical things. And then he goes back and he goes, look. But seek, same word as what Jesus says here prioritize first. This is the most important thing. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You see, Jesus knows that every person with sin in his heart is on a scavenger hunt for soul rest. And so he asks them here, what are you seeking? Notice he doesn't say, who are you seeking? He's saying, what are you seeking? What's missing in your life that you're looking for? He wants to know. He wants to know the treasure that you're running after today. And just like the woman at the well who says, well, you don't have a bucket. They respond on the physical level as well. Um, What's your address? Your address. And he says, well, come and see. An invitation with promise. Now we know that the point is not, I wonder what Jesus' address is. Because at the end of the story, we're not 
finding these two disciples going, we found it, we found his address. No, they're saying we found the Messiah, the one who can take away sin. Spiritual sight, he can do this. You see, it's interesting throughout the whole chapter of John 1. The greatest threat to our joy throughout the whole chapter has been spiritual blindness. That something real is standing right in front of us in the person of Jesus and we can't see him as being consequential or distinct or unique or authoritative or the son of God. Verse five, right? Verse five says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. Verse 11, he says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Verse 18 says, no one can see God. So when John the Baptist gets on the scene and when everyone sees him for the first time, he says, behold, what does behold mean? Look, see something. They still can't see it though. They're watching Jesus walk by and they're like, all right, tomorrow morning, let's meet back here, hang out with John. Twice he says, look, he's right there. And then just five Greek words, five Greek words make up the nine words that we have. What are you seeking And come and you will see. In five Greek words, Jesus addresses their spiritual hunger. He invites them to himself and he promises them that that he himself will help them to see spiritual reality. So that leads us to two application points. The first is this, is let's ask Jesus to help us see and believe. I just love how Jesus is never threatened by a truth seeker. The reason is because he is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the one and only truth. So he's not threatened by truth seekers. You never find Jesus saying, don't read other books. You might, you might end up worshiping another God. He doesn't say that. And the reason is because he says, there's no other God. In fact, at the end of this book, he's going to stand before Pilate. And Pilate's going to ask him a question. And Jesus is going to say this. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, what he means when he says that is that every single person who humbles himself enough to be open to wherever the truth will lead will be led to the feet of Jesus Christ. And so he's not intimidated by truth seekers. And so this morning, if you've come and you go, you know, I don't believe in Jesus Christ yet, but I want to learn a little bit more about what you believe. I would say this, take the Bible. If you don't have one that's that's, that's near you, take it home, open it up, start reading it and saying, God, if you are real, if if this is true, would you confirm it in my heart? He's not intimidated by that question. And so we can't be either. And the second thing, I think, in terms of application, that Jesus is the only one who can give spiritual sight, is that we who have trusted Christ and who do see, let's bring people to Jesus. Let's bring people to Jesus. You see, by the end of the day, Andrew's eyes are so open that he runs to his brother. I love how amazing sentences of truth can be boiled down in human language to where it's almost laughable. And what I mean by that is this. What he basically does is he goes to his brother, Simon, and he says, Simon, so you know the son that was supposed to be born that God promised that would crush the head of evil? You know that, like, like the man who was supposed to come, who would be the Messiah and the promised one over all times, and the one that all of our forefathers have been anticipating for thousands of years? Yeah. I met him today. I want to bring you to him. Isn't it interesting that he didn't feel the need to convince Peter? 
Jesus already said he's, he's going to do the convincing. My job is simply to bring. He simply brought. You know, last fall, we, we sought to, to, to lay before us as a church family a model. It's not the model. It's a model of how we would share the gospel with other people, the good news about Jesus, to bring people to him. And if you remember, what we, what we encouraged was this model that really starts with a reality that everyone knows, and that's that things are broken in this world. So when you're talking to someone, a neighbor, coworker, a friend, a parent, child, whoever it might be who doesn't know the Lord, say, isn't it interesting how broken the world is? And yet, even in its brokenness, we see God's amazing design, complexity of order, beauty, there's a, there's, a, there's a natural longing in our hearts for justice. And so you draw a little circle and you put God's design in there. That God made this, this place and he made it good. But then what you say is, you know what the fact is though, is that while we live in it, every one of us, even though God made it good, the Bible tells us that each one of us fell short of his glory and God calls this sin. And what this does is even though God's good plan and we sinned against it, what what that sin brings about is and you bring the second circle and that's brokenness. You see this in our relationships. You see it in our own heart. You see it in cultures and societies. You see it in racism. You see it in everything. Brokenness. It shouldn't be like this and yet it is. And so we run after all kinds of solutions. And what's interesting is every solution that we try to run after, it's a dead end. So while we're running, God ran after us and he sent Jesus. And this is something called the gospel. The gospel is simply the good news that says that Jesus ran after us when we were running after other things. And he came and he died and he was buried and he rose from the dead. And then when he rose from the dead, he extended to us an offer. And that is that in our brokenness, if we would repent of our sin and if we would believe in Jesus Christ, that we would be forgiven. And not only forgiven, but God Almighty would literally take our our, our, our pile of brokenness, and he would literally begin the process of bringing restoration so that we could experience God's design once again, not only here on this earth, but then perfectly forever in heaven. And so this is what we would encourage is to look for our opportunities, even this week, that if your eyes have been opened, they've been opened, not just for selfish reasons, they've been opened to help other people see as well. The last thing that you see here of why Jesus is the fullness is because Jesus has the authority to change our identity. The reason that you can run to Jesus when he says, come and see and know that you're going to go to a place and he's going to bring you to good ends, to good places, is because he's the only one who has the authority to change not only your name, but your identity. (laughs) This is one of my favorite little verses. I don't know why. I've always been just intrigued by verse 42. Andrew brings his brother, Simon. Jesus looks right at him and he says, so people call you Simon. That's great. I'm going to call you Cephas or Peter. Now think of the audacity. (laughs) Think if you came up to me your first time here and you came up and you said, hey, I just want you to know my name is Mike. And I go, you know what, Mike? That's a great name. I like the name Mike. People call you Mike, but I'm not going to call you Mike. I'm going to call you Frank. You'd go, what? who is this guy? This whole pastor thing's gotten to his head. He, he's, he's thinking he can go changing people's names. No, I can't change people's names because I'm not God, but Jesus can because he is God. In the Old Testament, we find God changing people's names to correspond to a calling that God gave to that individual. He says, you're Abraham. I'm going to call you Abraham. You're Jacob. Great name. I'm going to call you Isaac. And well, he does the exact same thing here 
with Simon. And it's not that Simon is not a great name. It's that Peter means rock. And he wanted to make him into a rock. And so he says, I'm just going to start calling you what I know I'm going to make you. We get a hint of this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter. You're the Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, there's clarity given here. You need to remember this, is that Peter is not the Petra. He's the Petros. And the reason that's important is because when you get to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we're told this, is that God's household, meaning the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, the Petra. Now, why is this significant? Well, because there's a lot of people that believe that the church and its authority is based upon Peter being the first bishop in Rome. And so when the bishop in Rome that we now call the Pope says something, it becomes authoritative, even if it contradicts the Bible. And what's happening here. His name change specifically, what's happening here is this. He's saying that the entire church is built upon the Petra. Ephesians says the Petra, the the rock, is Jesus Christ. But how the church came into existence is God used an instrument, a human rock, Peter, in order to preach this first sermon. So when we get to Acts chapter 2, people are going crazy. Peter stands up and he says, look, this is what's going down. Jesus rose from the dead and you need to look at him. The church was then established, the very first church. And so his name was representative of what God was going to do through him. But ultimately, the church is built upon Jesus himself. You see, in changing his name, Jesus was saying, Simon, I know who you are right now. I also know who you will become. You're going to be a rock. And so I'm going to start calling you rock. I'm so committed to working in your life to help you become what I can see you're going to be that I'm going to go ahead and call you what I'm going to make you. Now, every now and then throughout the Gospels, we're going to find, whether it's the Lord or whether it's a writer, referring to Peter as his old name, Simon. It usually happens in two cases. One of them is when he's referring to legal instances like Peter's ownership of a boat or Peter's home where there was literally a deed to where someone could look at it and say, you know what? Simon owns this and everyone knew. And so they use Simon in those cases. The other time that we're going to find Simon being used most frequently is when, is when Peter messes up. It's when he's behaving like the old man. And so we're going to get to a passage such as in Mark chapter 14. Where Jesus says, now guys, I'm so troubled that I want you to, in this garden, I want you to pray with me. I'm going to go over here. You stay here and pray. He comes back and he wakes him up and he says, Simon, why are you sleeping? There's going to be multiple times because Peter has some growth to do just like me. John apparently knew Peter or Simon really well. He knew where he was. He also knew what God was making out of him. And so what we find in the Gospel of John is he often refers to him as both names, Simon, Peter. I know who you were. We fished together a long time before Jesus came around. I know the kind of man you were, but I also know the man that you've become. You see, remarkably, Jesus has given us a new name. Revelation chapter 2 says, if you know Christ, he's already given you a new name. And it corresponds to the kind of person that he's going to make you. 
See, for those of us who've trusted Christ, he says he calls us his friend, an heir of God. He calls us holy. He calls us a new creation. He calls us righteous, child of God, citizen of heaven. He calls us justified. It's not because every day we bear witness of these things. It's because he knows where we're going. He knows that he's committed to taking us there and we're going to get there. So he says, I'm just going to call you that now. You see, Peter's story and your story and my story is really the same story. It's a story about people with a lot of potential for good, a lot of potential for evil, a lot of potential for growth, and a really committed God. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He's going to finish it, so be encouraged this morning. And by way of application, let's give ourselves to this Jesus who's making us whole. Let's give ourselves in trust and obedience and faith and worship, generosity to this one who is taking us home. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we acknowledge you. We thank you for your kindness and for your love. And we pray that as we, um, Father, consider what you have said to us in your word, would you help us to either know how to obey it or how to thank you for it, how to respond to it. We pray, Father, even as we give and as we take a little bit of time just to contemplate that you would use this time to encourage our hearts. We thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus. We thank you for what you've made available. And Jesus, we believe you're the one with the authority. You're the one who can take away our sin and you're the one who can give us spiritual sight. And you're the one and only who can change our name and give us a new identity. We thank you, Lord, that you're committed for our good and to our good. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.